Welcome to the CTO studio today, where we have Kimishan Naidu, CTO and co-founder of Unibuddy, based in the UK. And he talks to us today about psychological safety in our engineering teams. He did this presentation to a group of us, and I wanted to bring this chat to you, and hopefully you'll learn a thing or two or three or four about instilling trust and safety in your engineering team. So enjoy. Yeah, co-founded CTO of Unibody, and it's been six years now since we started, but I've been an engineer for a bit longer than that for the last 10 years. And what I want to share today, it's something that I've recently realized, especially in the last six to 12 months. And I feel it's a trick I've been missing for most of my career. Like many of you, I've spent a lot of my time working on technical aspects like architecture and developer tooling or people aspects like attracting talent and getting the right team topology. But I suppose what I've become really passionate about is the psychological side of building elite engineering teams. And I found it's the psychological and emotional scaffolding that really holds together all these things we talk about. So I believe what I'm going to share is really critical to all of us. And it's what I call the psychological architecture of your team. From seven CTOs, my name is Etienne de Bruin, and you're in the CTO studio. Seven CTOs is a global collective of CTOs helping each other become world-class leaders through our peer groups that meet once a month, as well as one-on-one -on -one coaching and mentorship. We carefully assemble our forums with seven like-minded people who are at similar and adjacent stages with their companies. They help each other solve challenges unique to technical leadership roles. Each forum gets assigned an executive coach who leads conversations of emotional support and growth as well as holds space for difficult conversations we need to have sometimes. Check out 7CTOs.com and apply today. Mention CTO Studio and get a free strategy session with yours truly. And I truly look forward to hearing from you. Now, what do I mean by psychological architecture? Psychological architecture is a framework that recognizes, acknowledges, and supports what makes engineers human and what makes them tech. If we don't have this, it limits the impact of all the great technical work that we might be doing. And this is why I think we need to focus it as, as technical leaders, as CTOs or other engineering leaders. One is we tend to focus on tools and processes as technology leaders. And the Agile Manifesto, as we all know, talks about focusing on people over process and tools. And if we're neglecting team psychology, it might be because we think it's something less measurable or it's HR's job. And I'm here to talk about why it is our job and why we actually can measure and quantify this as well. And lastly, psychological architecture, it offers best practices that makes us better engineers by focusing on how we behave and interact with each other instead of what technical skills we have or, or what engineering practices that we're applying. So what I'm hoping to do today is offering a framework that you can use to build the psychological architecture into your department. But first, let me spend a few minutes talking about how I came up with this framework. So when I first started building teams, I did what I think most technology leaders do when they're building a team, 
I took things that were measurable, that were in all of the recommended books, that were clear best practices. And I made sure we implemented these best practices at Unibody. So as we grew, however, I started to really wonder why we weren't innovating like we used to perhaps five years ago. And I thought about whether it's my fault for not empowering our product squads enough. The other, on the other hand, I questioned, was it possible that we had focused too much on process and it was now detrimental to getting the best out of engineers? And the last question that I posed to myself, was it inevitable that as you become bigger, every organization suffers from this feeling of dwindling speed and innovation? And I really wanted to find the answers to this. And the, the engineer in me wanted to go out and, and, and read everything I could to find out. I started looking around and I realized I needed to go beyond these, you know, traditional books that we were all reading. And one of the first things that came across my desk is, is the state of DevOps report, which some of you may also have read. And what it found was that the critical foundation that elite teams are built on is psychological safety. And this is from the biggest, one of the biggest engineering studies of all time. And the report referenced Project Aristotle. And that's where I basically went next. For those of you who haven't heard of it, Project Aristotle is a study done by Google that examined all of their teams and it further backed up that the critical element of all the best performing teams was high levels of psychological safety. And this made me realize that I need to understand a bit more about psychology because if the critical aspect underpinning elite engineering teams was actually psychological safety, I, I, I need to know what this is and how to measure it and how to build it. So this is where I went outside of engineering and I started to expand my horizons. And I also remember that the best innovation comes from the cognitive diversity produced by cross-disciplinary learnings. I decided to add this part of psychology, at least to my toolbox. And I took a psychology course online at UPenn. And this course focused on resilience and positive psychology in individuals and in teams as well. So the combination of these three things, when I started to look at it, the combination of the DevOps report, Project Aristotle, and the psychology course, it made me realize that what I was missing from my tool set was this framework, which I just mentioned for building resilience and psychological safety and engineering teams. Once you put this framework in place, it's a multiplier. And that's what I really love about it. And you'll have it in place for life. And it's really worth the investment. To circle back to that question of why is this our job and not HR's job? It's because fundamentally, this is a leadership issue. Psychological safety, psychological resilience is about building habits, which starts with you. It starts with me as leaders. And it's about calling out bad behaviors. And it's setting example of good ones that promote these things as well. So that's enough of a background though. I'm excited to dive into the framework. And as I mentioned, there's two major components that we're going to go through. One is resilience. And resilience is really the most critical quality that you want to build. I'd say you start with resilience. And it's the definition of resilience that psychologists use is the ability to bounce back from negative emotional experiences and to flexibly adapt to changing demands of stressful experiences. But the division that I read is as important and it's the ability to grow from challenges. And the research is clear that teams and companies that are resilient will outlast the competition and perform better time and time again. So as the team leader, 
it's important to understand the scientific variables that either support or inhibit resilience in each individual in your team. Now, there are eight of them in total. I won't go through all of them, but what you need to know is that there's some variables that you can defect or change, such as biology or genetics, which affects resilience in individuals or your team. But many of them you can actually influence and affect. The most impactful one and the biggest component that makes up resilience is optimism. And that's what I'm going to talk a bit about now. So there are three tools that you can use to build resilience through optimism in yourself and your team. And to, to go through them, one is it's critical to be aware of what are optimistic behaviors. And these are not vague or undefined behaviors. These are actual behaviors that psychologists have identified in optimist and the most resilient people. Two is there's something called the optimistic method, which we'll go through, that you can use to deal with challenges. And three, it's how we communicate. And psychologists um, have come up with three attributes of communication that make up optimistic communication, and that's using external, temporary, and specific language. And we'll go through what that means as well. So first up, the first tool in this is being aware of the optimistic behaviors. And it, it looks like a long list, but there's really just these nine critical behaviors that optimists display, right? And it ranges from being skillful at identifying problems to being approach-orientated which means coming up with strategies instead of avoiding problems. I do want to highlight two behaviors from here and tell you a bit of a story about each one in terms of how they can be very powerful when you promote the behaviors and your team starts to show these behaviors. So the first one is, and one of the most useful optimistic behaviors is reframing problems as challenges instead of threats. To give you an example, a few months ago, we were implementing a tool called Haystack at Unibuddy. And this was to measure engineering KPIs. Some of you might use it as well. And so these KPIs, like your typical DORA metrics, deployment frequency, cycle time, et cetera. And when we started to implement this, I noticed that some of our squads, our product squads felt a bit intimidated by this. And they confided in me that they were worried that the numbers might not look good. And at that point, I realized that they felt threatened by this tool. So I attempted to reframe it and suggest they look at it differently. And I pose the question, what if you use these KPIs as an opportunity to identify technical debt or challenging engineering work that will improve the KPIs? And then after that, I slowly started to see that they were more curious than frightened to see the KPIs and to figure out how to influence them in the right direction. And the result of it was that I noticed squads taking more ownership of their technical roadmap and in the beginning of this year, the impact of this was our deployment frequency had increased 600% in a six-month period. Going from seeing, measuring these KPIs as a threat, and just changing that to seeing it as a challenge and driving towards what can we do to get better really made a big difference from my experience. And, and we found a really significant 600% increase in deployment frequency. So that's the first behavior is to think about is how can you better frame challenges or better frame problems as challenges instead of threats. The second behavior that I wanted to highlight, another very powerful one is how can you use humor to deal with situations, especially stressful situations? So this is an optimistic behavior that can instantly change the atmosphere and improve team morale. 
Again, let me give you an example. A couple of years ago, when we had some downtime due to a server that had stopped working. And at the time we were hosting our apps on Heroku instead of AWS. So one of our senior engineers, they had two tabs open in their browser. One of them was our QA environment and the other one was our production environment. And what happened was, is that they were planning to turn off the QA server, but they lost track of which tab they were in and they'd essentially turned off <laughs> the production server un unknowingly. And they happily had confirmed that, are you sure you want to turn it off? Because they're like, yes, I'm sure I want to turn off the QA server. So when we did the post-mortem, it was really interesting because we realized two things firstly that really lightened the situation. One was it's a mistake anyone could make. So we couldn't really blame this person because we, we all have tons of tabs opened and you lose track of them sometimes. And it's, it, it's, it's a mistake that we shouldn't be able to make so easily, but we couldn't. And it's no matter how much, how seriously we took ourselves as engineers, there was no surefire way to eliminate this risk. Even the best guardrails or warnings wouldn't have solved the problem if you don't know which environment you're in. What we found was that made a very tense situation to be a, to be a more humorous one. And then we started to focus on the action items to make the environment you're in to be more obvious to engineers to prevent it from happening in the future. By by using humor to, to lighten the situation, you also allow people to focus on the problem and to take pressure off someone feeling like they're in hot water or they're being blamed. And we all know that blameless postmortems is what we really want to strive for as well. So those are just two behaviors of optimists that have highlighted. And ultimately, you want to be aware of all nine behaviors. Um, you want to show them to your team, praise team members when they exhibit these behaviors. And you can even look at incentivizing these behaviors in your career progression framework and company value system as well. So that's the first tool when it comes to optimism and resilience is using these behaviors to advantage. The second one is applying the optimistic method. And this is a simple formalization of one of the optimistic behaviors, really, which is in the previous list. And that is optimists focus on aspects of the problem that they can control and accept what they cannot control. Now, we face a variety of challenges as tech leaders from unexpected product delays to tough hiring markets to team members that might be difficult to work with. Make a list of the things you can control in the situation. Two, make a list of the things you have to accept. And three, write down a list of action items that you're going to go forward with. And I promise you, this will take you five minutes, but you'll instantly feel a lot better and more optimistic about the problem and the issue you're facing after doing it. And if you develop this habit and train your team to do the same, it will make your whole organization more resilient through building this optimistic habit into your day-to-day -day as well. So that's a quick second tool. And lastly, the third one is the most interesting because you probably haven't heard of it, but it's how can you actually go about building resilience through optimism by communicating from an optimistic perspective. And to demonstrate this, we're going to look at two narratives after a technical incident at a large company by two different tech leaders. So let's say Facebook goes down for five hours after an unprecedented spike in traffic. Now, the engineering team starts to look for the root cause internally and finds it was a messaging service that didn't scale. The VP engineering at Facebook now starts to feel unsure about the reliability of all the systems. If it happens to one service, it could happen to any service. Both the VP and the business teams now start to feel a lack of confidence and 
a lack of confidence in the reliability of all products, which starts to turn into a lack of trust of the entire engineering team. Now, the lack of trust spreads amongst the engineering team, and then they start to feel that they aren't doing well in general. And they feel that they're stuck with poor, untrustworthy, and unreliable systems. So some of you might have seen this before in companies you've been at where an incident happens and all of a sudden it balloons and it spreads into a ton of negativity and it makes everyone feel really under pressure, under stress and feeling like they're in a, in a situation that's not fixable. So the situation goes from a single problematic incident to the team feeling like it's the end of the world as they know it. And psychologists call this way of describing the situation to be internal, stable, and global. Now, what does this mean? It's internal because we focused only on the internal causes or why we are to blame for it. It's stable because the team think that after a temporary event, we now have permanently unreliable systems. And it's global because one service going on, this messaging service that went down, is actually affected the entire company's confidence in every system and every server. So this kind of catastrophizing and communication happens far more often than it should in organizations, both big and small, and it can destroy a company's culture. Now, let's flip this around. Let's look at the optimistic perspective of describing the same incident. Here, we want to encourage the perspective that describes the situation as majorly caused by external events, that's temporary and specific. What really happened is that we had a unique circumstance, which was an external spike in traffic. And this temporary event that isn't happening every day caused a specific single service out of hundreds of services to go down. And the other 99 of our services actually scaled exceptionally well. So in reality, only one in a hundred services are problematic. And when we start to describe it like this, we're saying we're actually doing well as an engineering team, but we've had a setback. And the team should now focus on fixing the specific problem and prevent it from happening again. So you can apply this process to any event that could create negative feelings in your team. If you had to fire someone, if you had a product launch go bad, if you had someone resign, how did you describe that situation to your team? What was the impact of it? And how could you have done it differently? Now we're going to look at safety, which is the second and final component of the framework. And psychological safety is a term coined by Professor Amy Edmondson at Harvard University about 15 years ago, not too long ago, but it's, it's definitely become a bit of a buzzword today. And I'm sure you're hearing it being banded about, seeing lots of books written about it, presentations, etc. Because it's a buzzword, the first thing I want to do is start by defining it very clearly. So the official definition, and this is really all psychological safety is, and people may misattribute it to other things, but psychological safety is a belief that one will not be punished or humiliated for speaking up with ideas, questions, concerns, or mistakes. That's all psychological safety is. So there's two really big components there. One is I can speak up with all these things, and two, they won't be I won't be punished or humiliated for speaking up with any of these techniques. And the, the next question is, where do we even start with this? And how can you measure it and improve psychological safety in your team? Now, when I said about doing this, I, I spent hours searching for resources. I read tons of blog posts. And, and to be honest, most resources I found are a bit vague. 
And they don't provide you with actually concrete auction items that you can take to do this. But there was one excellent resource which, which I'd recommend. And I, I don't believe in reinventing the wheel, so I'd much rather you you go and look at this resource. But this is the psychological safety toolkit that you can download um, at this website, psychsafety.co.uk. And now there's a bunch of amazing documents in it, and it's impossible to go through all of it. But I wanted to highlight like the real few critical pieces of information to give you an idea of what you need to do to measure and build psychological safety in your team. So... The first starting point is to understand what are the three fundamentals of, of safety. And these are the babies, again, you need to be aware of and you want to incentivize the team. The first one is creating the space to speak. And the questions to really ask yourself over there is how are you modeling curiosity and encouraging your team to question and challenge both yourself and other team members? So how are you actively creating that space for people to speak out versus passively expecting it or because you say it's our culture to speak out, so everyone should speak out, right? That's that's not the same thing. You need to actively be cultivating spaces for people to speak out. The second is the belief that everything is an experiment. So we know how important framing is because we discussed framing problems as challenges instead of threats. And it's really important to frame work as a learning problem and as an experiment. And my question I pose to you is how many of you are framing work as a learning problem versus an execution problem? Because the framing you really want is, is framing as a learning problem versus we, we just need to execute, get X, Y, and Z done. And the third fundamental cornerstone of psychological safety is admitting your mistakes. And the question again to, to really pose to yourself here is how often do you acknowledge your own mistakes and, and fallibility? And have you set the example of a leader? to actually speak out and admit to making a mistake. And if you encourage others to do the same as well. So this is an overview of what safety is made of and it's starting points where you can start doing this from tomorrow. Creating a safe space to speak actively, framing work as a learning problem and as experiment and admitting to your own mistakes and encouraging your team to do the same. Now, no. The question is, okay, we know what safety is and we know what the fundamentals are. The first step is to measure where you currently are on your team. And this is quite an easy step to do, to be honest. It involves sending out a quick Google form consisting of these 10 questions. You'll find these in the toolkit. Now, these questions are adapted from Amy Edmondson's fearless organization. So they've been extensively studied, they've been extensively tested, and they're very carefully cultivated questions that will bring out and extract the right insights from your team. It will take each of your 10 members, like team members, like five minutes to do. It should be done completely anonymously, and you'll immediately be able to then identify the current state of safety in your team. So this toolkit also shows you how to analyze the response and how to score your team on safety once you've sent this out. So it's just 10 questions to send out and you'll immediately be able to measure safety in your team. So I'd highly recommend doing that. It's the low-hanging fruit. It isn't really an excuse to, to, to not be able to, to get this out pretty quickly. Let me take a minute to read the 10 questions that you'll use in your survey. These questions were adapted from the Fearless Organization, which is copyrighted by Amy Edmondson, 2018.
first question, on this team, I understand what is expected of me. Secondly, we value outcomes more than outputs or inputs and nobody needs to look busy. Number three, if I make a mistake on this team, it is never held against me. Four, when something goes wrong, we work as a team to find the systemic cause. Five, all members of this team feel able to bring up problems and tough issues. Six, members of this team never reject others for being different and nobody is left out. Seven, it is safe for me to take a risk on this team. Eight, it is easy for me to ask other members of this team for help. Nine, nobody on this team would deliberately act in a way that undermines my efforts. And finally, number 10, my unique skills and talents are valued and utilized in my work as part of this team. The next part of safety is that there's often a misconception that psychological safety is about being soft or accepting lower standards. And the definition of safety we discussed has nothing to do with that. In fact, a culture of psychological safety should enable higher standards of performance because you're going to speak out if you see something not done according to, to how it should or in, in better ways. However, the problem is that you can have high levels of safety. So say you send out the survey and you find that, oh, my team's really psychologically safe but you're seeing that results are not good still. And the problem there is you might have high levels of safety, but low levels of drive. Now, this is the psychological safety quadrant. And you can see up on the y-axis, you've got psychological safety. And on the x horizontal, you've got drive. Now, that situation which I just spoke about, you might have a team in a comfort zone where you have high levels of safety, but low levels of drive. And to actually get achieve a high-performing team, you need to have high levels of safety and drive, and that's where you will get that high performance. So if you do the survey and you find that psychological safety is really high, then you need to start looking at why it might be that drive is low in your team. Do they know what their purpose is? Is your mission clear? Have you given people enough ownership? Do they have enough autonomy? Kind of Daniel Pig's driver's attributes of drive then come in, come in over there. And that's something else you can look at. So yeah, you want to measure safety and you also want to understand the drive in your team. And the worst position you can be in is that in, is that bottom left corner of the quadrant where you have low levels of safety and low levels of drive because then you're going to get poor performance and you're just going to have a lot of apathy where people won't even speak out about the poor performance because there's no safety in the first place. So this quadrant, I found it really useful and enlightening. It's a missing piece I feel that people forget about when thinking about safety. It's not the only thing that results in high performance. Five simple steps to improve it. So you've measured it. You have a, you've seen the drive in your team as well. One is once you've done the survey, you want to address the lowest scoring question in the survey. So each question will tell you what you should address in your team based on the average score of it. Two, and in the toolkit, you'll find a few workshops. So you want to lead a value and behaviors workshop and 
three, you want to complete the psychological safety checklist. And there's also a remote checklist as well. So building psychological safety when your team is remote requires you to do some extra things to build that safety and trust because it's not the same as a face-to-face team in the office. So you to definitely check out those two checklists. And you can carry out, and, and this is my favorite, one of my favorite exercises of fear conversation exercise, which will also be really insightful towards a psychological safety in your team. And then it's the same thing, rinse and repeat, measure this every quarter, work on improving it, and you should see those scores increase over time. And assuming drive is also increasing, you'll start to see better and better results in your team. So we've now discussed the entire framework and you you should have a set of tools to build both resilience and safety in your team. In, in essence, you know what this is all about. If you think about resilience and safety, um, incentivizing optimized optimistic behaviors, being aware of the psychological safety fundamentals. It's really about how you make how we as leaders and how you make people feel. Engineers will decide to stay or leave your team to give two hundred percent or not, and to make every other important decision ultimately based on how you make them feel and how they feel being a part of your team. And it's, it always reminds me of the famous Maya Angelou quote, which is people forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. So how can you make people feel safe psychologically? How can you make people feel more resilient, more optimistic? This is really what this is all about. And yeah, I, I hope this helps and, it's, and there's some really practical steps for you over there. So, Kibishan, we spoke a lot about psychological safety, but how do we, on the other side, how do we keep that drive? How do you normally incentivize the drive of your team? Yeah, so I, I, I really am a big believer in, in Daniel Pink's three major components for drive, and it's essentially purpose, autonomy, and mastery, if I remember correctly. If you're lacking drive, you're likely lacking one of those things or all of those things. Is there enough autonomy in a squad? Mastery, is there personal development? Is there career growth? Are people learning new things? And purpose is really about, do they understand the outcome? Do they understand the objective? So those are three areas that I'd focus on and that that should result in in high levels of drive. I, I love what you said around safety doesn't imply being soft or weak. I wonder... How does one deal with entitlement or if someone's feelings are hurt by someone, that person might be feeling brave because they're in a safe environment, but then inadvertently offends someone or how, I guess that's where the resilience and the optimism comes in. But have you dealt with that? And do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I've seen examples of where people speak out in the wrong way. And it can result in, yeah, it can result in something that's more toxic than helpful. So I think perhaps the missing piece with the definition of psychological safety is the way that people speak out matters as well. And that perhaps where things like radical candor and thinking about the care part of it comes in. So I think psychological safety is people feeling they can speak out and then training people on how to speak out is perhaps a different topic. And requires different training. But the, in the first place, people need to feel like they can speak out and they won't be punished. Because in a lot of companies, we don't even get to the point where people are speaking out in the wrong way, but they, they just don't know how they can speak out or they don't trust anything will be done if they do. 
Yeah. And I, I guess the challenge is the, I have an image of what speaking out looks like, and it's the image of where I feel great when someone is vulnerable, but yeah. what do I do when that person speaking out is true to them, but is really flagrant in its ideology or it's, you, we heard this base camp situation on a all hands meeting, people felt safe to speak up, but then it had this big consequence. So anyways, I think it's yeah. tricky in this day and age. Yeah. It's not an easy problem. I feel it's about building the culture in your team and setting the precedent of what it looks like to speak out in the right way. And people model the behavior based on what they see others doing when they join. Such a great topic, such a great framework. Appreciate it, Kim and Sean, very much. No problem. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of CTO Studio. This is a little taste of the many conversations we have inside 7 CTOs. In addition to our peer groups, 7 CTOs members are also part of Slack, where ad hoc issues can be addressed by the larger collective. We also have one to two Zoom calls a week where we go deep on specific challenges like brand new technologies, hiring strategies, people management, and expanding our influence and branding as technology leaders. Also check out 7CTOs.com where we publish our list of events like upcoming retreats and colloquiums in a city near you. Applications are always open, so mention CTO Studio when you apply and you'll get a free strategy session with me. Wouldn't that be fun? See you next week.